I hope everyone is having a wonderful holiday season. We have just one quick but significant update to share with you since this episode was recorded, and that is that Congress has approved a combined $900 billion COVID-19 aid package and $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill. Among the wins for orthopedics, and noteworthy because of the discussion you will later hear, the legislation helps mitigate the impact of impending Medicare cuts and finally ends surprise medical bills that have plagued our patients for years. We will have much more to share on these developments in the new year, but hope this good news motivates listeners for building on our success. And with that, please enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. Hi, and welcome to the last episode of the Bone Beat Podcast for the year 2020. I am joined by Graham Newson, who leads the AAOS Office of Government Relations and co-hosted one of the first episodes with me back in April. Welcome back to the show, Graham. Glad to have you. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here. You know, you and I were discussing what we were going to talk about for this last episode, and we wanted to do a look back at what a memorable year it has been for the musculoskeletal community. Of course, that story cannot be told without mentioning the heavy influence of COVID-19. So uh, we're very fortunate to have with us here Dr. Claudette Lajam from the NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital and the Center for Musculoskeletal Care. Thanks for making time for us, Dr. Lajam. Thanks so much for having me, Kristen. It's so great to be on. We're really excited to have you on the show, and we think that you're uh, the perfect guest for this topic for a couple reasons. Uh, First, the idea for this podcast was actually born out of the Advocacy Resources Committee while you were chair. Um, And here we are in in our final episode for its inaugural year, so that's uh, pretty neat. Another reason is you're no stranger to OGR and the work we do on behalf of our surgeon members and their patients, but you also practice in uh, New York City at the epicenter of the virus. So we, we are really looking forward to you making that connection about how healthcare policy has directly impacted patient care. And finally, we're going to get into this a little later, but You are a joint surgeon, and that portion of our membership is being impacted by some of the changes we're going to discuss later uh, that are taking effect in 2021. Um, So I want to begin actually by going over to Graham and and having him illustrate the point about how much COVID-19 has changed the priorities for the healthcare community. So Graham, uh, can you recount how we began this year and what were some of the items on our advocacy agenda? Yeah, thanks, Kristen. Actually, uh, it's no secret, 2020 was certainly a a year unlike any other. And at OGR, uh, at the Academy, we started the year as we normally do. We um, knew it was an election year, so we were preparing for that. Uh, But we also were working on our unified advocacy agenda, which is sort of our blueprint uh, for the coming year on key issues that we wanted to focus on and that were priorities for our members. Those issues uh, ranged from surprise billing, uh, which we had been working on for quite a while. Um, Payment policy is always uh, important. 
we want to make sure that uh, there's access to appropriate health care. So payment policy is critical. Uh, we also are looking at regulatory relief, and that means things like prior authorization needs to be reformed and streamlined so it's not a burden uh, to the care of our patients. And then we also looked at uh, repealing the ban on physician-owned hospitals that provide quality care. Uh, we wanted to uh, see what we could do to give them the ability to expand. So it was a normal start to a year. We had a lot of issues on the table and we were excited to get started. And then you fast forward to March uh, when the Surgeon General and CMS asked the healthcare community to postpone elective surgery. They, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> they talked about needing to preserve PPE, allowing hospitals to prepare for um, the onslaught of cases. And it took some time for Congress and those regulatory bodies to understand the implications of that federal guidance and the problems that our healthcare professionals were facing. Meanwhile, our doctors like Dr. Lajam were in the trenches dealing with the realities of this pandemic. Uh, so, so Dr. Lajam, I, I would love to hear from you what those first few months were like. Obviously, your experience um, and the experience of our members vary greatly by practice setting and geography. What were some of the common challenges you think our members faced? And then can you expand on your own unique experience in New York City? That's a great question, Kristen. You know, what, what I think was truly a common theme is that everyone had truly a different experience and it depended where you were. Where, where I am in New York City, we had truly a, a, a pandemic. We had a big problem. A lot of people had COVID. My hospital was filled with people with COVID. We had a crisis. I myself had the illness and I was very sick. Um, so I, I, we definitely had a crisis and, and the, the, the shutdown of elective surgery, the hospitals were full, um, you know, that was very real to us. And some of the things that were done, uh, banning elective surgery, preserving PPE, all of the things that the government did made sense here in New York City. But in other parts of the country where my colleagues had their practices shut down, where they had no COVID cases, it didn't make sense. And, and that's where, you know, there was a lot of disconnect there. And it, it was very frustrating for a lot of our orthopedic colleagues who had to shut down everything and their entire livelihood was Put on hold and there was a lot of uncertainty and it was a lot of fear um, and we didn't know what was going to come next uh, for a lot of people in their orthopedic practices and we didn't know when it was going to end and they didn't have the same problem that we had here in New York so so I think you know you had two like a tale of two COVIDs you had one one kind of situation where here in New York we had true crisis and in other parts of the country you didn't so, you know, you know, I personally was, you know, hit with the disease myself. Our, our elective surgery practices were hit because we had to put off elective surgery for a while. So economically we're hit. Um, then many of us, including me, once I was allowed back to the hospital to work, we were, um, we went back and we volunteered to work on the COVID wards. 
and take care of people with COVID. And I did that myself. I was very happy to do that. Um, some people volunteered happily and some people were voluntold. They went and they were required to do it. Um, so there's a, 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 such a diversity of experiences of people who went through this whole process um, and, and truly you know, trying to take care of your patients and worrying about what's going to happen um, to your practice and your profession, it was a, a, real, a real crisis. So everybody's experience was very different at the very beginning in March and April and May. And then when we thought things were getting better, um, we started to try to get back to, to, to rebuild our practices, to rebuild things, but we never quite got back to normal. And, and that's, you know, another thing. And now that we're seeing um, the reemergence of some cases of COVID in other parts of the country, um, and our colleagues who had to shut down back in March and April, who didn't really have so many COVID cases, um, having to shut down again because they're seeing another surge, um, you know, they're getting, you know, another hit. Right. So, you know, the hits just keep on coming. <laughs> right. And we we're going to talk about some of those additional hits in a little bit. Um, I want to go back to the the thing you said about there being a tale of two stories for our members, because um, in the thick of all this, while you were volunteering to be on the COVID ward, you were a patient yourself, you know, the academy in working to represent the entire healthcare community was looking at the congressional response, the regulatory response, we actually brought on um, uh, Congressman Brad Winstrup to talk about that and um, a senior medical advisor from CMS to talk about the regulatory response. Throughout all of that, we as an academy and association were trying to come up with the asks of policymakers to help equip our doctors and making sure they could provide um, the best care and the most access. So Graham, um, going back to you, you talked about the uh, original agenda for 2020 and how that the normal, abrupt, start. <laughs> the normal start to the year, right? And right. which was just abruptly changed. Um, what were some of the policy priorities that we worked towards to help doctors like Dr. Lajam in the thick of the pandemic? Um, yeah, great question. Dr. Lajam used the word uncertainty. And I think uh, by March of the year, all of a sudden, everything that we had planned um, we had to pivot from because there was this uncertainty out there as to exactly um, what this virus meant, uh, certainly what it meant to the public, to our members, to healthcare. And I will tell you, thank goodness for our membership and thank goodness for leaders like Dr. Lajam, because we were hearing from them all of the problems that were taking place. And that helped us try to determine what would be the right policy responses to try to help them. Certainly funding was, was a major concern. But again, each day we were hearing new problems. Elective surgeries were getting canceled. Many surgeons were foregoing pay. Uh, support staff were furloughed or had a cut in pay. Hospitals were being overwhelmed. You know the story. So we focused first on making uh, our surgeons whole, and that is getting them financial relief as best we could. And it was a bit of a struggle at first, but Congress finally got on their feet and passed uh, some legislation. Uh, folks will remember the CARES Act. 
In the end, we were able to secure about 300 million for orthopedics. And I know that was a help, but by but I'm sure we could have used more. And so that effort will continue. Financial relief is key. Personal protective equipment. We heard about the need for that. So that's certainly something to focus on. But for me, one of the most um, interesting changes was the rise of telehealth. That was not really on our radar at the beginning of the year. And all of a sudden there was talk of expanding out of necessity telehealth. So we worked with CMS and um, HHS, and in the end, they did expand telehealth for Medicare, and uh, there are now um, a number of practices that are using that service. And that certainly now will be a fixture in moving forward uh, with the issues that we work on. One final note, just medical liability uh, protections for surgeons uh, during the public health emergency became a real concern because many surgeons were forced to delay care due to state and local guidance. And many found themselves working outside of their normal practice area. So they were putting themselves at risk trying to help the the public. So we were looking into ways to find um, protections for them from unjustified lawsuits. So those were some of the issues that we had to pivot to. But again, I thank our members for keeping us uh, plugged into what was really happening out there uh, on the ground. We chatted with Dr. Lajam just before uh, beginning this conversation, and one of the words she used to describe her members uh, were that they're fixers. And um, I think that's so spot on because while she and others were uh, rising to the occasion and trying to address issues in their hospitals, um, they were also taking these rapidly changing healthcare policies and trying to apply them in their practices in their hospitals. So Dr. Lajam, how would you connect some of those uh, changes or breakthroughs that Dr. that Graham just described and connect them to how they made a difference at your hospital and in the treatment of your patients? That's a great question. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff to, to unpack here, but you know, th- you know, first of all, the the needing to stop elective procedures and having to manage these patients who had elective procedures delayed, and then having to get them back to get their procedures done, all in this environment of COVID and the fear of COVID, and having to. Uh, deal with not only the pandemic, but the emotional reaction to it of our patients and having our members and our surgeons have to deal with that with their own patients. And, you know, we're used to managing people with comorbidities and, and musculoskeletal complaints and, and their surgery and, and all the the things that go around surgery. But then we add this, this other factor, this COVID factor of, of managing that on top, top of all of it, and it really is just a not so nice cherry on top that we had to do. But, you know, of course, our members are, are awesome. You know, orthopedic surgeons are some of the most uh, uh, successful and um, and driven and and smart people in, in, in medicine. And we are fixers and we'll figure out a way to do things. So we took this problem of people having delayed surgery and having all these additional problems that we needed to then, you know, get them back and do their surgery after we were allowed to start doing them again and figure out a way to do them. But still, 
you know, you have unforeseen problems related to delays in surgery. So maybe their medical conditions were exacerbated during the time they had a delay in their surgery. Maybe they hadn't seen their primary doctor in a long time. Maybe their diabetes got out of control. Maybe their uh, cardiac disease got out of control. Uh, maybe something else happened to them. Maybe they gained weight during the time that they, I, I know certainly a lot of people have gained weight during uh, this uh, pandemic. They've been sitting around at home. The, the COVID-19 is a lot more than the name of a disease, uh, according right. to a lot of people. Yes. It's the 19 pounds <laughs> that you gain sitting around at home. Um, so you know, you, you're, we're having to deal with these things that we never thought we would be dealing with. Um, so, But of course, our members are rising to the occasion of this and trying to learn how to manage a whole new set of things surrounding our patients and the things uh, perioperatively that we now have to deal with when we are doing their surgery. But again, we take it in stride and we're doing it. But as, as Graham also pointed out, um, it's a whole new level of liability. Are we now having to take on this new level of liability that comes along with this unprecedented um, pandemic? You know, we don't know what COVID does to people uh, in terms of adding to their perioperative risk. People who have maybe had COVID in the past and now maybe three or four months later have elective surgery. Does that add to their risk? Are they going to have something happen to them? Is that our fault or should we be held liable for that? Um, people are stressed out and, and distracted. Um, are people getting the, the post-operative physical therapy they need? There's a lot of moving parts here that we as surgeons can't control in our patient's recovery. And um, it's very important for us to recognize that we aren't in control of a lot of the factors that have to do with our patient's operative success. And our Congress and our um, lawmakers have to realize that we need to have some liability uh, reform and relief related to those things. And we need to advocate for, that, for those things as well. Speaking of needing to control things and looking to advocacy as one way to do that, Dr. Lajam, uh, one of the highlights of this year was our in-district advocacy event that took place in August. Following months of hard work on behalf of our surgeons and of our uh, lobby team in Washington, we came together around four basic um, issues. We brought these stories virtually to members of Congress as well as CMS, and we were really able to present a unified uh, a message. But I want to go back to a couple of the notes that you and Graham touched on and, and just ask you more about how they directly impacted patient care. Um, one of those what being telehealth. Is there anything about telehealth or, or other wins per se that were uh, a result of our advocacy this year that have really made a difference in your patient care? Well, definitely, uh, Kristen, you know, the in-district advocacy was incredibly successful. And it, it's one of those things that, you know, you never knew that you needed to do something until you did it. And this was something that I think we're going to continue to do even without um, a pandemic. We, we realized that this is something that engaged so many more members and we were able to do such a great job with that in-district advocacy. And back to telemedicine and telehealth, um, that is something that, again, another thing that was a surprise for all of us, that um, it's been sitting there uh, 
uh, not being used for such a long time or being used in such a small way uh, because of such a heavy, heavy regulatory imposition uh, and not being able to be used. It's been so tightly regulated um, that it's, it's never been used. And just being able to lift those regulations because of the pandemic has opened up so many doors to allow us to use this tool to treat our patients. And especially for uh, us as orthopedic surgeons, where we deal with patients with limited mobility, to give patients who have limited mobility better access to us who, um, you know, they may not be able to get to the office to be able to have a virtual visit. Um, this is something that we can take beyond the pandemic um, and say, oh, you know what? You don't need to come into the office. You just need to talk to us. You need to, to discuss something with us and, and get an idea of whether or not you really need to go take the next step or whether or not you just need a physical therapy referral or medication or whether you really do need to talk to a surgeon. This is perfect. You know, someone with limited mobility doesn't need to come to an office and get on, especially, you know, in New York City, where it's a subway and a bus and it's difficult to get around. Um, you don't need to come to an office. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful tool. And this is something kind of a gift the pandemic gave to us that we had this lift of restrictions on telemedicine. So you know, again, you know, in this dark, dark cloud, we found this little silver lining. Yes. Dr. Lajam, if I could just uh, jump in on that point, because you talk about uh, the importance of telemedicine and carrying on beyond the public health emergency. Um, this is one issue that it sounds to me, uh, what I'm hearing is would make absolute sense to continue the flexibilities beyond the public health emergency. Isn't that the way you see it too? Oh, absolutely. And I think it would be a real, real shame if they bring back the limits that were in place prior to this emergency. And I understand that HIPAA needs to be in place again. You know, they lifted the privacy restrictions and that's mainly because, you know, the technology wasn't in place, you know, for, in, in you know, on the, right. The instantaneous. I mean, they, the people didn't have technology right away. And right. I understand that the HIPAA needs to be in place. Privacy is important. But the other restrictions, the, the, the state-to-state restrictions, I'm sure they're going to have some arguments about that. But neighboring states, you know, in, where we live here, New York, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, I see patients from New York, from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut all the time in my regular office, why shouldn't I be able to see them via telemedicine? Um, I understand, you know, that that's, there are some questions about that. We need to work them out, but there's no reason I can't see a new patient and triage them via telemedicine. If someone can't walk, why should they need to come into my office just to hear that, I'm the right person for them to see or the wrong person for them to see. Right. It really makes no sense. And it, you're not doing somebody a service by making them physically come into an office when they have a severe musculoskeletal problem. And especially for us who do what we do. And we have so many ways to get around 
some of the barriers that say, oh, you can't do a great exam. Yes, you can. We can figure out a way. Uh, we can, we, as again, we go back to this we'll thing we were it. talking about before. <laughs> we're fixers. Yes. We can fix this. We can figure it out. That's very true. And you're hinting at some of the uh, progress that we've made in the year 2020 that we do hope carries over into 2021. I, I want to transition, uh, Dr. Lajam, you were talking about access to care and how telehealth has um, allowed us to do that more than ever before. I want to talk about another huge um, item out of this year, and that is the payment policy changes that came out of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They were proposed uh, back in September and recently finalized. And for those who who are not closely following, uh, the the highlights are that CMS is reducing the value of surgical care and more specifically, the value of hip and knee replacements. Secondly, they're eliminating the inpatient only list beginning with the 266 musculoskeletal services in January. So I want to get your take as a joint replacement surgeon on how these significant changes coming off the tail end of COVID-19 and actually as we're beginning a second wave are going to impact our members and our patient care. Well, I think I said it before, you know, the hits just keep on coming. Right. Uh, Well, frankly, this is very short-sighted. And if the goal of these changes is to substantially limit access to musculoskeletal care, then great. That's what they're going to achieve. Um, You are taking a bunch of professionals who have been very, very hardly, very hard hit by this pandemic, um, both professionally and financially, um, and now creating yet another tremendous um, administrative and financial hit on them. And it's just, it's very difficult. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult and very challenging. So, um, so basically, to sum, it, to sum this up, what's, what's, what's happened is they've decreased the value of each RVU. So that's changed just how everyone's paid mm-hmm. under Medicare. And then they further decreased the value of hip and knee replacements by 5%. Um, completely because of a very short-sighted view of changes because of bundled payments. Um, We as surgeons have been working very, very hard to partner with our institutions to try to make them successful in bundled payment programs by limiting our post-op visits and front-loading and working very hard to optimize our patients. Um, And because of this, because we've eliminated one post-operative visit, trying to save our institutions money in their value bundled payment programs, surgeons are being punished for that. Because now Medicare is saying, oh, well, you're not seeing these patients now for one visit. We're going to decrease how we pay you. When all this time we've been doing all this extra work before surgery so we can eliminate this extra post-op visit. You know, our association, 
was preempting these cuts. It's something we've been fighting for years. And the argument you made about spending time on value-based care and all the preoperative uh, work that our members do is is one we often make to Congress and to CMS. I want to go to Graham um, to expand a little bit more on what AOS is doing to fight these changes, both in advance of January 1 and after uh, changes such as the IPO elimination take effect. Graham, can you expand on that? Yeah, Dr. Lejean said it very well. Um, and and these, these cuts would have been wrong at, in any environment, but to do it in the middle of a pandemic just doesn't make any sense, as she's indicated. Now, I, I do want to mention that there is legislation out there, H.R. 8702. It's called the Holding Providers Harmless for Medicare Cuts During COVID-19 Act of 2020. What that legislation will do if passed is it will hold harmless our surgeons from these cuts for the next two years. Now, our hope is that that uh, legislation will move through Congress, and we're certainly going to uh, keep working on it uh, well into the new year because these cuts cannot stand. It's just not fair, as Dr. Lejean said, and it's not fair to our patients. Um, so we're going to be working on that for sure. And then, uh, Kristen, you also referenced the elimination of the inpatient-only list. Um, again, we're not opposed to things coming off the inpatient-only list, but CMS determined that they would take all 266 musculoskeletal services from the inpatient-only list and do it all next year. So that's, that's quite a number of services that are now off the inpatient-only list. And our belief, our concern, is that the physician in consultation with their patients should be the ones to decide whether the procedure is done as an inpatient or outpatient. So we're gonna to have to continue to work with CMS to make sure this is done correctly. Um, again, uh, we want to work with CMS, we wanna make it uh, effective, uh, but we have to make sure that the physician's role remains paramount as far as determining the actual location of the surgery. Well, and you're absolutely right, Graham, because what happens with this is it becomes uh, completely twisted and misinterpreted as, oh, well, you know, we just really mean that it doesn't need to be inpatient. And, and it becomes twisted into, oh, it must become outpatient. It must be outpatient. And manage Medicare and all the commercial payers then interpret this as, oh, it must be outpatient. And it harms patients. You have folks who are very, very sick, who have a lot of comorbidities, who really require inpatient monitoring and inpatient care, who are then denied an inpatient stay, who need it. And it's, it's very frustrating. I mean, I was on the phone with one of the managed Medicare companies and arguing with this non-orthopedic insurance doctor about a patient who had very serious comorbidities, who had a knee replacement, and he was in the hospital for two days. And she was telling, well, he's technically an outpatient because he was only in, the only in the hospital for 48 hours. I said, well, where are you getting this? Well, Medicare says mm -hmm. he doesn't need to be an inpatient. So this is what this has come to. 
I, I mean, it's, it's become, it's become ridiculous. And this person had hypoxia postoperatively. He had adrenal insufficiency, needed steroids. So there, this, this has become frankly dangerous to patients where you need to basically have a patient on death's door for an insurance company to say that a patient requires inpatient care. So you're getting to the point where it's become dangerous and we need to do something to make Medicare aware that this is the extreme of what these measures do when they make these statements, when they make these decisions, this is what happens. That's a perfect segue to the last question that I wanted to ask you, Dr. Lajam. Um, and you may have actually just answered it a little bit, but in summary, looking back at this year, we began with the challenges around COVID. We went to our in-district event in August. We were hit with these payment policy changes. And oh, by the way, we had a presidential election. I mean, what a historic year for our healthcare community and for our members. My last question, as we begin a brand new administration come January, right when this episode is airing, what do you see being the biggest challenge for healthcare policy? And maybe it has to do with what you just discussed about the patient safety around the inpatient only list being eliminated, or maybe it has to do with physicians needing to maintain that, that autonomy and making those decisions with their patients. What, what do you see being the biggest challenge? Well, uh, Kristen, I think, frankly, that's really it, is that the, the physician needs to maintain autonomy, and frankly, the physician needs to be seen as a professional. Um, I think the fact that physicians have been downgraded to being some cog in a wheel that doesn't have any sort of authority or um, value anymore. We're just some sort of economic widget. Um, and, and it's wrong. I mean, we need to have some sort of say in the care of our patient and Frankly, we are burdened with 100% liability for everything that we do, but we are being robbed of all of the control over what happens to our patient. So we need to either be given more control over what happens to our patients, or we need to be not held liable for what happens to our patients. They need to decide. Well, Dr. Lajam, you've provided incredible um, insight and anecdotes into the experience that you faced this year. We're so appreciative for you making time to come on the show and talk about how our advocacy was shaped by COVID in, uh, in 2020. And as we look ahead to 2021, uh, you know, being involved in advocacy and in shaping healthcare will be even more critical relationships are key to our success. And we hope that if our member listeners uh, were inspired by your story and in this episode, first, we hope that they'll graciously rate the show or leave a review or share it with a fellow, um, but also get in touch with the association and, and become an advocate for your patients 
and for the profession. With that, thank you both for joining me on this last episode of the Bone Beat Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on and and Happy New Year. I am so glad to to turn the calendar page to 2021. (laughs) Well said. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Dr. LeChamp. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.